Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, time travelers of my acquaintance and friendship. I hope you're all well. Uh, Before we start today's episode, I've got some great news about the podcast. Uh, The team and I... Uh, We're thrilled about the fact that we have hit a million downloads of the podcasts. One million downloads. And and it's quite fitting because, as we've said all along, we're dealing with a million years of history. So there's a download for for every year since those footprints were made in the soft sediment of the Thames at uh, Haysborough in Norfolk. So I've got to say a big thank you to all who've come along on the journey with me, with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. To help support the making of the podcast, I run a Patreon site, uh, which has a a new history and comment vodcast every week, along with competitions. Uh, I'm sure we'll have more competitions as the site develops. If you want access to more of my videos, uh, and if you feel like helping us in the making of this podcast, go to patreon.com, search for me, Neil Oliver, and sign up. It would be great to have as many of you as possible along with me for the ride. Okay, Time to pack your bucket and spade because we are off to the seaside in the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. They will go there for the absolutely cast iron or 24 karat gold reason that these places are lovely and they deserve to be visited. In this episode, we're putting on our best, our very best, our Sunday best, and strolling along the stylish promenade in the Nice of the North. A naturally striking location with the North Sea to the front and the wild Yorkshire moors behind. On its cliffs, an Iron Age fort was built. The Vikings later took a fancy to the place. And in the 13th century, Henry III fortified it. But it was the Victorians who ultimately added the grandeur and the glamour. Attracted by the restorative spa waters, it becomes England's first seaside town. With a beautifully imposing grand hotel that was built to show that Scarborough meant business. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the previous episode, we stood on the battlements of Berwick-upon-Tweed, 
a town England and Scotland fought over for centuries. Where are we this week? We're staying on the coast, Paul, uh, and we are parading. We're promenading on the promenade of a glorious Victorian spa town and paying homage to the British seaside tradition. Overlooking a stunning long curve of pale sand is what used to be the largest hotel in Europe, built in the shape of a V to honour Queen Victoria and designed around the concept of time. We're checking into the Grand Hotel in Scarborough. The location, Paul, for this little sliver of the love letter to the British Isles is the Grand Hotel in Scarborough. I think Scarborough is undoubtedly, as as is the case with all the traditional British seaside resorts, with the advent of cheap flights to the Med in the 70s and then the, the, you know, the real surge in popularity in, that, in the 80s and 90s, all these seaside towns fell on hardship. And Scarborough, very much so. It's like, like Morecambe. They're undoubtedly beautiful locations and a seaside industry had grown all around these places. But when people could you know, spend a couple of hundred pounds and get to Tenerife or Torremolinos or whatever, the cold water of the sea at Scarborough lost its appeal. Because of the, the collapse of the seaside tourist industry, you had unemployment and, you know, so you had people that, you know, the incomes were very low. It was a perfect storm of problems for people. And I've been around and around the coast, as you know, and and I love so many of these places and they're all they're all afflicted and affected in that same way, especially in the case of somewhere like Scarborough, because the location is so lovely. What's it like? It's well, I mean, if you if you're able to sort of, I don't know, half close your eyes, I suppose, and, and not quite see the the evidence of decline, you're looking at a beautiful beach. As is the case at Morecambe. You know, we've talked about Morecambe Bay Sands. It's stunning. I mean, a breathtakingly beautiful location. Scarborough l- looks different, but you've got this, you know, you've got the sea in front and then rising up behind, you've got the moorland. The sort of location where they filmed the television series Heartbeat <laughs> is just up behind Scarborough. You know, so those moors are just behind the sea just out of sight of the sea. Like Morecambe, it was another of these places that laid claim to titles like the Nice of the North. Morecambe was the Naples of the North and Scarborough was the Nice. It's also a location where you can you can play the game of stripping away the modern world and even the Victorian world and you get back to something much older with much deeper roots. There's a castle that sits up in the cliffs today and the castle that's there actually sits upon or in the vicinity of the location of an Iron Age fort. So you've got a fortification going back to a time before the Romans. Vikings came to Scarborough. Obviously it's on that east coast so it was accessible to, in the main, Danish Vikings that were coming out of Denmark and prowling up and down the east coast of Britain from Orkney and Shetland all the way down. There was Viking contact, Viking connections and the Vikings established themselves at Scarborough. 
it came into what you might describe as its first heyday in the 13th century, which is to say the 1200s, when King Henry III of England, he spent considerable sums of money bolstering the defences of what was by then a thriving port. It's very interesting, it's always been very interesting to me that before it was possible to cross the Atlantic, from which point onwards our attention turned steadily and then increasingly towards the West, towards the potential of America, North and South. For millennia before that, we looked East. We looked to Europe for all our trading connections. And that was the case when we looked at King's Lynn. King's Lynn grew rich as part of the Hanseatic League, which was a fellowship or a confederation of towns along the Baltic coast that saw the the advantage of clubbing together, which they duly did to form what was the Hanseatic League. You could quite justifiably describe it as like a precursor to the European Union. It was an attempt to see beyond national boundaries and to create something bigger. They tried to standardise currency and they tried to standardise laws and they welcomed one another's merchants and allowed them to set up shop in their town. It was very sophisticated. And what eventually became the common market and then the the EEC and then the the European Union that that we've just recently broken away from, courtesy of Brexit. There were centuries and centuries of, of trade, especially between the east coast of Britain. One of the first things that William Wallace did, you know, William Wallace, Braveheart and all of that, when he had his fantastic, famous victory over Edward's troops at uh, the Battle of Stirling Bridge. One of the first things he did was to write to the Hanseatic League and say that Scotland was open for business. And actually the letter saying so is one of the few occasions where we actually see his name. He's on a document declaring that, you know, Scotland's open to trade with Europe. To cut a long story short, that King Henry III would bolster the defences of the port at Scarborough is just emblematic of the fact that trade east back into Europe was highly valuable and merchants in Scarborough, like elsewhere, were growing fat and rich on the proceeds. Is that why Edinburgh became the most powerful Scottish city? Because it's on the east coast? Yeah, yeah, everything was everything was eastwards. That's what stimulated a lot of that. We tend to think of it that the North Sea and the English Channel as barriers, which they are, but they're also motorways. We think of them as something keeping people apart, but since time immemorial, you know, right back to the Neolithic farmers that were coming across in their very basic craft with some seed for wheat and maybe some young cattle hogtied in the the hulls of these craft, people have been using the North Sea to get back and forth since forever. And so we shouldn't be surprised that long, long before Scarborough came into its own as a seaside holiday resort, It had already mattered because of trade for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. But then the Scarborough that we all think about, the Scarborough that we all think we know about, it was really in the early 17th century that that began to happen on account of a local woman called Mrs Farrow. She paid attention to the mineral waters, the mineral-rich waters that rise in the town. They're springs. And she declared, and there's some reason, you know, she's right enough, that the water there had curative properties. It's good for your health. And so it became 
really one of the first places where people would go from the inland areas to take the waters. Bathing in and drinking the waters, quite sulfurous, quite briny and brackish, but it was thought to be good for you, for all sorts of things. And it started small and became popular, and more and more people were coming to bathe in and drink the water. Scarborough was able to lay claim to being, it still does lay claim to having been England's first seaside town. So everything that then spread to Filey, Whitby, Whitley Bay, Clacton, Cleethorpes, Bournemouth, Brighton, all of that English seaside industry, well, Scarborough says it started there. And for the sake of argument, it probably did. And what developed was a full-blown spa. People go to spas now to get all sorts of treatments. Well, it kicked off in Scarborough where it was all about taking advantage of the natural water that was rising there. And then in the Victorian era, it took on a grandeur. So the Victorians came in with their cast iron, all the railings, the twirls and swirls, the staircases, the acres of glass that are there in the Victorian structures that were built as the luxurious and grand venues for you know musical performances and people who were there having a fully three-dimensional experience. They were there to take the waters and get healthy, and high culture was there too. Bands and orchestras and dancing and all of that grew up in these grand Victorian structures. Well, the Grand Hotel was the apogee of all of that. It was completed in 1867. It was designed by a Hull architect called Cuthbert Broderick, And believe it or believe it not, the Grand Hotel in Scarborough was the first purpose-built hotel in Europe. You know, elsewhere, other buildings were repurposed as hotels. You know, guest houses, lodging houses, whatever. But from start to finish, the Grand Hotel was built from the foundations up to be a hotel. And for a long time, it was by far and away the largest hotel in the British archipelago. In Scarborough, you know, you'd imagine it being London or whatever, but it wasn't the largest hotel for the longest time was the Grand Hotel in Scarborough. And even now when you go, and there's no getting away from the fact that the Grand Hotel has fallen on much harder times, but you just stand and look at it, look at the exterior, and you can see the Victorian ambition and the Victorian pride. It's all there. It's pale sandstone, pale sandy bricks, which were brought in, quarried in nearby Hunmanby. A red brick is there, you know, providing the detailing. You wouldn't necessarily notice it from being outside and looking at it, but the Grand Hotel is built on a V-shaped footprint, and the V stands for Victoria. So looked at from above, it's a gigantic letter V, in a way that wouldn't really be replicated until the Millennium Dome that was built 133 years after the Grand Hotel in Scarborough. It's all about time. The Millennium Dome, which we'll get to later in the love letter, actually, it makes references to time. Obviously, the Millennium Dome was built for the year 2000, and it has lots of nods within it to the passage of time and the passing of thousands of years. Well, the Grand Hotel in Scarborough is full of it. It's 12 stories high, the 12 stories representing the 12 months of the year. So it's big then? Oh, it's vast. It's it's vast. It's huge. Even now you go and look at it. Whatever big hotels you're used to looking at, wherever, the, the Grand Hotel is still a hotel that you could only describe as big. It's a, it's a whopper. 
So it's 12 storeys high. There are four towers, two at the narrow end where the V starts and two at the extremes of the V. And they represent the four seasons, which is to say spring, summer, autumn and winter. At the time it opened, it went through kind of modifications subsequently, but when it opened and for a while thereafter, there were 365 rooms, one for every day of the year, and 52 chimneys on the roof. (laughs) Representing the weeks. So it was, was, I mean, grand. They were almost having a laugh, I think, but also honouring Victoria and grandeur. And the concept of time. Another lovely detail is in the rooms, in the baths, in the rooms, there were two sets of taps. One set provided fresh water and the other set provided water from the sea. So you could do your sea bathing in your hotel room (laughs) if you so wished. And it was all about showing off. You know, I think when we talked about Morecambe Bay, we, we mentioned the Midland Hotel and how it was a location that attracted the most famous Coco Chanel, Laurence Olivier, those were the sorts of people that rocked up there and put their names in the register at the Midland Hotel in in Morecambe. Well, some of the same people were attracted to the Grand Hotel in Scarborough. It was one of these places, you know, where you wouldn't have been allowed over the door in a pair of jeans or leisure wear or gym kit. No way. You had to be dressed. Right up into the 1970s, you had to look respectable to get over the door. So it had a real sense of itself. All airs and graces, I suppose you would say by now. Um, but then, as, as we've already mentioned, it very suddenly really fell on hardship because of package, cheap package holidays. Now, I'm not knocking package holidays. When I was a student and later in my 20s, I, I was looking for the same cheap deals that people were always taking advantage of to get to Spain and the rest of the Med and the Greek islands and so on. But it, it did mean that people just weren't prepared to go and spend the money to lie on a much cooler beach and I don't mean cool in a good way a much cooler beach in Scarborough beautiful though it is there's just no denying that if you've only got two weeks holiday in the year and you want to get a tan or if you want to luxuriate in a bit of hot sunshine chances are you'd choose somewhere other than Scarborough and so what had been gold became brass and the shine went off of the Grand Hotel and the holiday makers of yesteryear stayed away in droves For a while there was a a slow motion, elegant decline. For a while it was owned by Butlins and it was only really surviving by offering budget breaks and so on. And I don't want want to come off as sounding like I'm knocking that either. But what had been the Grand Hotel in Scarborough became somewhere that was just offering cheap, cheap accommodation. And what was happening at the Grand was happening all over. The spa and the rest of the town kind of slid collapsing a bit like an eroded cliff and wages for the locals, average pay in Scarborough was the lowest in the land of course there was terrible unemployment and all the rest of it but you know the reason it's in the love letter is that Scarborough because of its history, because of the depth of time that's there from the Iron Age up through the the time of drawing, attracting and, and holding for a time the attention of the Vikings them establishing it as a trading destination which was continued and sustained for hundreds of years thereafter and then the discovery of the healing waters and the building of the spa and all the grandeur of the Victorian era culminating in the in the Grand Hotel but it's all about the location 
you stand on the beach at Scarborough and the sun comes out and it's stunning. And then you turn your back on the sea and you look up at the location, you know, the castle is still there. The Grand Hotel is still there. And if you kind of soft focus your eyes, you know, sort of half close them, lower your resolution, it's still beautiful. It's all still there. And with the injection of some cash, it would just come back. It would come back and re-establish itself as what it was. You know, it was one of the queens of the sea. For a while, she was the queen of the British seaside. And so she still is. She's fallen on, on hard times for a few decades, less than a lifetime. But Scarborough is a stunning place. It's in a stunning location in Yorkshire. And the spa is still there. You know, all that glass, all that iron. But ultimately, it's about the beach. And the beach has been stunning for thousands of years. And the beach will be stunning for thousands of years to come. Uh, this long, elegant curve of pale sand. So you'd have to say, long live the Queen. Long live Queen Scarborough. of the British Isles do love the seaside. Even though they've gone elsewhere, they still love it, don't it's, they? It's coming back, Paul. I, I swear to you. I, I spent a lot of years making a, the television series called Coast, and as part of it, obviously, we were often in what had been the, the holiday destinations. You know, the English Riviera along the south coast, and, you know, there's so many places that are so close to people's hearts. And even while I was there, you could feel it. You could feel a kind of a, you know, it was almost like looking at a tree you thought was dead, but then comes a spring and there's some shoots. There's suddenly a, a kind of a, a haze, a blur of green on what you thought was gone forever. And you can see these places coming back because everything's on a cycle, everything's on a circle. And look at now, you know, people locked down and whether people want to go abroad or not, it's difficult. And now, you know, people have all sorts of complications about PCR tests, lateral flow tests, vaccination status and all the rest of it. Your costs of everything is going up. And what is going to be the Mediterranean's loss will be the English Riviera's gain and Scarborough and Yorkshire and all of them. Because people decide that after a while they want something else. Maybe they don't want to just go and sweat on a beach surrounded by thousands of other people. You know, maybe they want something different. And the endlessly varied British coast provides that. It has so many different characters. You know, start at Yorkshire, head north, Northumberland, Berwick-upon-Tweed, which we just mentioned there recently. Then, obviously, you know, for me, the Scottish coastline East and North and West, the islands. Galloway, unbelievably beautiful. The Antrim coast in Northern Ireland, stunning. I mean, breath breathtaking and so overlooked by so many people for so long. And the Welsh coast, Cardigan Bay, Pembrokeshire, stunning, absolutely breathtaking. You know, and then down the west coast of England and then into Cornwall, into Devon, Dorset, all of these places. And these places... They captured people's hearts and captured people's imaginations for a long, long time. And people were distracted by the other things that were on offer. But for a whole complicated cocktail of reasons, my prediction is that the revivifying blood of the nation will start going back into the British coast and destinations like Scarborough. And I think there's every possibility, maybe not all of them, 
but the best of them that are populated by entrepreneurial people that can find new ways to attract people, the Scarboroughs will come back and people will be glad. They won't be second best. They won't be something that people resort to because there's nothing else. They will go there for the absolutely cast iron or 24 karat gold reason that these places are lovely and they deserve to be visited. Ever seen the extraordinary photos of the tuna fishing at Scarborough? Yes. Ah, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know. Was 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 Ernest Hemingway not rumoured to have spent time doing big game fishing off the coast at Scarborough? Because for a while, the whatever it is, is it the mackerel? Tuna. Is it the shoal? No, but it, I think it's shoals of mackerel. You know, sometimes warm water or whatever, or the conditions take them to certain places, and for a relatively short period, whatever it is, and the mackerel eat. Was, was whipping up and down past Scarborough. And so the tuna the tuna followed them in and the big game fishermen <laughs> followed the tuna, yeah. And there's photographs of these guys like Hemingway, yeah. you know, standing beside nine foot long, <laughs> gigantic predators of the ocean. Yeah. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? It's like, yeah. if that's possible, anything's possible. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think it was in the 20s, wasn't it? The 20s and 30s. 30s, yeah. Yeah, well, like that, it, that's a perfect metaphor, Paul. You know, that... The time brought the time brought the tuna, and it and it brought the grandeur. Again, you know, after the Victorian era, there was another there was another tide, another run, that brought wealth and prosperity and glamour, maybe most of all glamour, to Scarborough and the surrounding area. Well, that tide will come again. there's muck, there's brass. Powered by their fabulous fecundity and astute political brains, the Stuart family prospered. Marrying into power, they flourished, inheriting the Scottish and English crowns and spreading across the British Isles. In the 19th century, a smart Stuart spotted an opportunity not to be missed, developing the port of Cardiff's small dock, the Coal Bonanza began and incredible fortunes were made. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and who continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Imagine. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.